Chapter 6 That evening they built a fire on the beach, and Jason sat with his back to the safety of the sea. He took his helmet off, the thing was giving him a headache, and called Ijal over to him. I hear Ch'aka, I obey. She ran hurriedly over to him and flopped onto the sand. I want to talk to you, Jason said, and my name is Jason, not Ch'aka. Yes, Ch'aka, she said, darting a quick glance at his exposed face, then turning away. He grumbled and pushed the basket of Krenoy over to her. I can see where it is not going to be an easy thing changing this social setup. Tell me, do you or any of the others ever have any desire to be free? What is free? Well, I suppose that answers my question. Free is what you are when you are not a slave or a slave owner. Free to go where you want and do what you want. I wouldn't like that, she shivered. Who would take care of me? How would I find any Krenoy? It takes many people together to find Krenoy. One alone would starve. If you are free, you can combine with other free people and look for Krenoy together. That is stupid. Whoever found would eat and not share unless a master made him. I like to eat. Jason rasped his sprouting beard. We all like to eat, but that doesn't mean we have to be slaves. But I can see that unless there are some radical changes in this environment, I am not going to have much luck in freeing anyone, and I had better take all the precautions of a Ch'aka to see that I can stay alive. He picked up his club and stalked off into the darkness, silently circling the camp until he found a good-sized knoll with smooth sides. Working by touch, he pulled the little pegs from their bag and planted them in rows, carefully laying the leather strings in their forked tops. The ends of the strings were fastened to delicately balanced steel bells that tinkled at the slightest touch. Thus protected, he lay down in the center of his warning spider-web and spent a restless night half-awake, waiting tensely for the bells to ring. In the morning the march continued, and they came to the barrier cairn, and when the slaves stopped, Jason urged them past it. They did this happily, looking forward to witnessing a good fight for possession of the violated territory. Their hopes were justified when later in the day the other row of slaves was seen far off to the right, and a figure detached itself and ran toward them. "'Hate you, Ch'aka!' Fasimba shouted as he ran up, only this time he meant what he said. "'Coming on my ground! I kill you!' "'Not yet,' Jason called out, and hate you, Fasimba. Sorry, I forgot the formalities. I don't want any of your land, and the old treaty, or whatever it is, still holds. I just want to talk to you." Fasimba stopped, but kept his stone hammer ready, very suspicious. You got new voice, Ch'aka. I got new Ch'aka. Old Ch'aka now pushing up the daisies. I want to trade back a slave from you, and then we'll go. Ch'aka fight hard. You must be good fighter, Ch'aka. He shook his hammer angrily. Not as good as me, Chaka. You're the tops, Vasimba. Nine slaves out of ten want you for a master. Look, can't we get to the point? Then I'll get my mob out of here. He looked at the row of approaching slaves, trying to pick out Micah. I want back the slave who had the hole in his head. I'll give you two slaves in trade. Your choice. What do you say to that? Good trade, Chaka. You pick one of mine. Take the best. I'll take two of yours, but hole in head gone. Too much trouble. Talk all the time. I got sore foot from kicking him. Got rid of him. Did you kill him? 
Don't waste slaves. Traded him to the Zertanoi. Got arrows. You want arrows? Not this time, Fasimba, but thanks for the information. He rooted around in a pouch and pulled out a krenoi. Here, have something to eat. Where you get poisoned krenoi? Fasimba asked with interest. I could use a poisoned krenoi. This isn't poisoned. It's perfectly edible, or at least as edible as these things ever are. Fasimba laughed. You pretty funny, Chaaka. I give you one arrow for poisoned krenoi. You're on, Jason said, throwing the krenoi to the ground between them. But I tell you, it's perfectly good. That's what I tell man I give it to. I got good use for a poisoned krenoi. He threw an arrow into the sand away from them and grabbed up the vegetable as he left. When Jason picked up the arrow, it bent, and he saw that it was rusted almost completely in two and that the break had been craftily covered by clay. That's all right, he called after the retreating slaver. Just wait until your friend eats the krenoi. The march continued, first back to the boundary Karen with the suspicious Fasimba dogging their steps. Only after Jason and his band had passed the border did the others return to their normal foraging. They began the long walk to the borders of the inland desert. Since they had to search for Krenoy as they went, it took them the better part of three days to reach their destination. Jason merely started the line in the correct direction, but as soon as he was out of sight of the sea, he had only a rough idea of the correct course. However, he did not confide his ignorance to the slaves, and they marched steadily on, along what was obviously a well-known route to them. Along the way they collected and consumed a good number of krenoi, found two wells from which they refilled the skin bags, and pointed out a huddled animal sitting by a hole that Jason, to their unvoiced disgust, managed to miss completely with a bolt from the crossbow. On the morning of the third day Jason saw a line of demarcation on the flattened horizon, and before the midday meal they came to a sea of billowing bluish-gray sand. The ending of what he had been accustomed to thinking of as the desert was startling. Beneath their feet were yellow sand and gravel, while occasional shrubs managed a sickly existence, as did some grass and the life-giving krenoi. Animals as well as men lived here, and ruthless though survival was, they were at least alive. In the wastes ahead no life was possible or visible, though there seemed to be no doubt that the Zertanoi lived there. This must mean that, though it looked unlimited, as Ijal believed it to be, there were probably arable lands on the other side. Mountains as well, if they weren't just clouds, since a line of gray peaks could just be made out on the distant horizon. "'Where do we find the Zertanoi?' he asked the nearest slave, who merely scowled and looked away. Jason was having a problem with discipline. The slaves would not do a thing he asked unless he kicked them. Their conditioning had been so thorough that an order unaccompanied by a kick just wasn't an order, and his continued reluctance to impose the physical coercion with the spoken command was just being taken as a sign of weakness. Already some of the burlier slaves were licking their lips and sizing him up. His efforts to improve the life of the slaves were being blocked completely by the slaves themselves. With a mumbled curse at the obduracy of the human race, Jason sank the toe of his boot into the man. Find them there, by Big Rock, was the immediate response. There was a dark spot at the desert's edge in the indicated direction, and when they approached, Jason saw that it was an outcropping of rock that had been built up with a wall of bricks or boulders to a uniform height. 
A good number of men could be concealed behind that wall, and he was not going to risk his precious slaves or even more precious skin anywhere near it. At his shout the line halted and settled to the sand while he stalked a few meters in front, settling his club in his hand and suspiciously examined the structure. That there were unseen watchers was proven when a man appeared from around the corner and walked slowly towards Jason. He was dressed in loose-fitting robes and carried a basket on one arm, and when he had reached a point roughly halfway between Jason and the rock he had just quitted, he halted and sat cross-legged in the sand, the basket at his side. Jason looked carefully in all directions and decided the position was safe enough. There were no places of concealment where armed men might have hidden, and he had no fear of the single man. Club ready, he walked out and stopped a full three paces from the other. "'Welcome, Ch'aka,' the man said. "'I was afraid we wouldn't be seeing you again after that little difficulty we had.' He remained seated while he talked, stroking the few strands of his scraggly beard. His head was shaven smooth and as sunburned and leathery brown as the rest of his face, the most prominent feature of which was the magnificent prow of a nose that terminated in flaring nostrils and was used as sturdy support for a pair of handmade sunglasses. They appeared to be carved completely of bone and fit tightly to the face. Their flat, solid fronts were cut with thin, transverse slashes. This eye protection, the things could only have been for weak eyes, and the network of wrinkles indicated the man was quite old and would present no danger to Jason. "'I want something,' Jason said in straightforward, Ch'akish manner. "'A new voice and a new Ch'aka, I bid you welcome. The old one was a dog, and I hope he died in great pain when you killed him. Now sit, friend Ch'aka, and drink with me.' He carefully opened the basket and removed a stone crock and two crockery mugs. "'Where you get poison drink?' Jason asked, remembering his local manners. The Zertano was a smart one and had been able to tell instantly from Jason's voice that there had been a change in slaves. "'And what is your name?' Edipon, the ancient said, as uninsulted he put the drinking apparatus back into the basket. What is it that you want, within reason, that is? We always need slaves, and we are willing to trade. I want slave you got. I trade you two for one. The seated man smiled coldly from beneath the shelter of his nose. It is not necessary to talk as ungrammatically as the coastal barbarian, since I can tell by your accent that you are a man of education. What slave is it that you want? The one that you just received from Fasimba. He belongs to me. Jason abandoned his linguistic ruse and put himself even more on guard, taking a quick look around at the empty sands. This dried-up old bird was a lot brighter than he looked, and he would have to stay on guard. "'Is that all you want?' Edipon asked. "'All I can think of at this moment. You produce this slave, and perhaps we can talk more business.' "'I have an even better idea than that.' Edipon's laugh had very dirty overtones, and Jason sprang back when the oldster put two fingers into his mouth and whistled shrilly between them. There was the rustle of shifting sand, and Jason wheeled to see the men apparently climbing out of the empty desert, pushing back wooden covers over which the sand had been smoothed. There were six of them, with shields and clubs, and Jason cursed his stupidity at meeting Edipon on a spot of the other's choosing. He swung his club behind him, but the oldster was already scampering for the safety of the rock. 
Jason howled in anger and ran at the nearest man, who was still only halfway out of his hiding place. The man took Jason's blow on his upraised shield and was toppled back into the pit by the force of it. Jason ran on, but another was ahead of him, swinging his own war-club in readiness. There was no way around, so Jason ran into him at full speed, with all his pendant teeth and horns gnashing and clattering. The man fell back under the attack, and Jason split his head with his club, and would have done further damage except that the other men arrived at that moment and he had to face them. It was a brief and wicked battle, with Jason giving just a little more than he received. Two of the attackers were down, and a third holding his cracked head when the weight of numbers carried Jason to the ground. He called to his slaves for aid, then cursed them when they only remained seated, while his arms were pinioned with rope and his weapons stripped from his body. One of the victors waved to the slaves, who now stood and docilely marched into the desert. Jason was dragged, snarling with rage, in the same direction. There was a wide opening in the desert-facing side of the wall, and once through it Jason's anger instantly vanished. Here was one of the Karoi that Ijal had told him about. There could be no doubt of it. He could now understand how, to her uneducated eye, there could exist an uncertainty as to whether the thing was an animal or not. The vehicle was a good ten meters long, shaped roughly like a boat, and bore on the front a large and obviously false animal head, covered with fur and resplendent with rows of carved teeth and glistening crystal eyes. There were hide coverings, and not two realistic legs hanging about the thing. Surely not enough camouflage to fool a sophisticated six-year-old. This sort of disguise might be good enough to take in the ignorant savages, but the same civilized child would recognize this as a vehicle as soon as he saw the six large wheels below. They were cut with deep treads and made from some resilient-looking substance. No motive power was visible, but Jason almost hooted with joy at the prominent stink of burnt fuel. This crude-looking contrivance had some artificial source of power, which might be the product of a local industrial revolution or have been purchased from off-world traders. Either possibility offered the chance of eventual escape from this nameless planet. The slaves, some of them cringing with terror of the unknown, were kicked up the gangplank and into the Karoi. Four of the huskies who had subdued and bound Jason carried him up and dumped him onto the deck where he lay quietly and examined what could be seen of the desert vehicle's mechanism. A post projected from the front of the deck, and one of the men fitted what could only have been a tiller handle over the squared top of it. If this monolithic apparatus steered with the front pair of wheels, it must be driven with the rear. So Jason flopped around on the deck until he could look toward the stern. A cabin, the width of the deck, was situated here, windowless, and with a single inset door fitted with a grand selection of locks and bolts. Any doubt that this was the engine room was displaced by the black metal smokestack that ran up through the cabin roof. We are leaving, Edipon screeched, and waved his thin arms in the air. Bring in the entranceway. Narcissi, stand forward to indicate the way to the Karoi. Now. All pray as I go into the shrine to induce the sacred powers to move us toward Putulko. He started toward the cabin, then stopped to point to one of the club-bearers. Erebo, you lazy sod, did you remember to fill the water-cup of the gods this time? Because they grow thirsty. I, I filled it, I filled it, Erebo muttered, chewing on a looted krenoi. Preparations made, Edipon went into the recessed doorway and pulled a concealing curtain over it. 
There was much clanging and rattling as the locks and bolts were opened, and he let himself inside. Within a few minutes a black cloud of greasy smoke rolled out of the smokestack and was whipped away by the wind. Almost an hour passed before the sacred powers were ready to move, and they announced their willingness to proceed by screaming and blowing their white breath up in the air. Four of the slaves screamed counterpoint and fainted, while the rest looked as if they would be happier off dead. Jason had had some experience with primitive machines before, so the safety valve on the boiler came as no great surprise. He was also prepared when the vehicle shuddered and began to move slowly out into the desert. From the amount of smoke and the quantity of steam escaping from under the stern, he didn't think the engine was very efficient, but primitive as it was, it moved the caroy and its load of passengers across the sand at a creeping yet steady pace. There were more screams from the slaves, and a few tried to leap over the side but were clubbed down. The robe-wrapped Zertanoi were firmly working their way through the ranks of the captives, pouring ladlefuls of dark liquid down their throats. The first ones to receive it were already slumped unconscious or dead, though the chances were better that they were unconscious since there was no reason for their captors to kill them after going to such lengths to get them in the first place. Jason believed this, but the terrified slaves did not have the solace of his philosophy, so struggled on, thinking they were fighting for their lives. When Jason's turn came, he did not submit meekly, in spite of his beliefs, and managed to bite some fingers and kick one man in the stomach before they sat on him, held his nose, and poured a measure of the burning liquid down his throat. It hurt, and he was dizzy, and he tried to will himself to throw up, but this was the last thing that he remembered. End of Part 2 of The Ethical Engineer by Harry Harrison, 